The business of culture, the culture of business, policy, media and technology, investors, authors, creatives, much more. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are reluctant to say we are Iranian-Americans, and I assume this is probably the experience for so many other immigrants from countries that are at crosshairs with the United States coming into this country. Here with the author of A Beginner's Guide to America for the Immigrant and the Curious, plus a flashback to my interview with the Cuban-American honor student and Federal Reserve Bank intern who became one of the Medellin cocaine cartel's top men in America. That is before he got his PhD. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at link fullDRadio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. A shout out to our broadcast partners. WVTF, Virginia Public Radio across the Commonwealth, WERA in Northern Virginia and much of Washington, D.C., WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina, and KPPQ out in Ventura, California. Holler if you, too, would like full disclosure on your air. Joining us from New Haven, author, poet, all-around wordsmithstress, Roya Hakakian, author of Journey from the Land of No. The book that I want to reference today is A Beginner's Guide to America for the Immigrant and the Curious. How are you? I'm great and delighted to be online with you. Full disclosure, I also am an American Jew who came to the United States, albeit in the late 70s. Uh, mm-hmm. Hanom Hakakian came in the <laughs> early 80s. And I'd like to read from the New York Times book review calls A Beginner's Guide to America. A touching account by an Iranian-born poet details her adopted home's quirks. Money that all looks the same, well-stocked markets where the fruit has no smell. It's like Bono says where the streets have no name and yours is <laughs> where the fruit has no smell. <laughs> so much so, so much about this about this book struck me and I'm constantly pivoting back to my immigrant experience a lot of it traumatic and mm-hmm. coming here as a very small mm-hmm. kid as a three-year-old in the late 70s mm-hmm. into the mm-hmm. crucible of Miami and I'm struck by your observations having mm-hmm. been an older person and having lived mm-hmm. through the uh, Islamic revolution of the late 70s and mm-hmm. Having been micromanaged with your attire and everything, mm-hmm. the terror you mm-hmm. had coming into the airport and the very banal things in the United States that struck you about your first you know, hour or two out in the open. Talk to me about it. Well, first of all, I remember and you know, people often ask me, how could you remember things so well? Well, because it was such a fundamentally life-changing experience. How could I forget? In some ways, it, it is a second genesis. It's as if life began again after my arrival, after the touchdown. And, and so it was really difficult not to remember, not to commit to memory those early encounters. And, and I remember the very first thing was that, you know, the airport electric doors swung open. <laughs> and, and I stepped out and thought, life, landscape, 
has been stretched to limits I've never seen. And it was that, you know, the horizon was vaster, you know, buildings were taller, cars was far bigger than I had ever seen. People were, you know, monumentally large, you know, both, <laughs> you know, in, in all directions. And and I remember feeling that I had been dwarfed and that, you know, it was really hard to feel that, you know, my dimensions could somehow fit into this uh, new life. And that was my earliest. Your earliest experience. And I, I mean, I, I'm really struck by the, the poetry of your <laughs> recollections in the chapter Upon Arrival in America the Beautiful, if I can quote, mm -hmm. Apathy, evil in its own way, is a luxury of freedom. At the voting booth, democracy boils down to a ballot. On ordinary streets, as you see them on the first day, it manifests as indifference. The novelty you are experiencing today is just that. No one watches or cares much about what you do as long as you do not harm anyone. Bask mm -hmm. in the icy calm of this refreshing indifference. Years later, you might yearn for attention, but for now, you want to vanish amid the crowd and find this oblivion comforting. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of want to frame that. I want to tattoo it, because, <laughs> you know, as 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 writers, it's 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 one as immigrant writers. Later on, we're trying to get attention later in life, and we're very public facing. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. the how do I very egalitarian uh, leveling tendency kind of everybody. No matter how wealthy you are, yes, people get stares, but this in direct opposition to constant eyes and gossipy eyes and paramilitary people staring at you in the streets yeah. of post-revolutionary Iran. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, um, well, first of all, I'm flattered and delighted that you see the poetry in the prose, and I really wanted to create something really beautiful for several reasons. One, because when I set out to write this book, we were all so angry and we continue to be. And I thought I was not going to fight the anger with more anger. I was going to fight the anger with beauty, that, that my job was to create beauty to help us get to some other place. And the other was that I thought, you know, how could an immigrant pay great tribute mm. to her new inheritance? And I thought part of it had to do with me trying to pay my tribute to language. So those are those are sort of the you know the prose, you know why I chose the prose to be the the way it is. The other was that I thought, how could we as immigrants bring our perspective to this conversation about America? And I thought it was detrimentally important because. You know, those who are born and raised here cannot possibly see the value and the importance of some of the things we see. And you rightly mention this, this passage in which I say, you know, people just don't give a damn what you look like when you're on the street. And I was told the opposite growing up as a teenage girl in post-revolutionary Iran. I was told that, you know, if I uncovered my hair, uh, that you know, the world would, would end because all men it would be so, lose themselves so badly that they would be coming after me and I would be endangered. And so the idea that, you know, I could take the scarf off and, and walk down the street and not only nothing happened, but nobody cared. Nobody even looked at me. 
And of course, I knew all that intellectually, but, but to experience it was something entirely different. What is it about Persian culture? And I, I, can you translate? Is it Chesh to her Cheshmi? Um, well, is that I mean kind of this this gossip conspiratorial culture going back even to literature I know one of the pre-revolutionary comic series was was Daijan Napolon which is Iran's contribution <laughs> to you know man of men of <laughs> La Mancha and Cervantes and everything but exactly. always conspiracy uh, I, I see it with my mom I hope she's not listening to this but <laughs> conspiracy hatching and this is immodest and everything um right. Do you know what I'm? Do you know what I'm saying? It's it's something that's very peculiar to you know. You and I talk offline about tarof, which is kind of a right. preemptive courtesy, preemptive modesty. There's no way to define it in ten words or less for a radio yeah. listenership. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. you bring that modesty compounded with the fear and the paranoia that the revolution mm-hmm. kind of by design instilled in, in the Iranian street, and it's such mm-hmm. a striking freedom that yes i can i can take this off and i'm not going to be gawked at in fact i see other women wearing hijab or are shrouded and and they're going by their own way going by taxi cabs mm-hmm. and people with boom boxes and they don't you know nobody pays attention to them either i mean i this is really incredibly fascinating first of all i think you know maybe we are culturally you know genetically designed to be you know, paranoid, as you put it. But I think it is somewhat a product of being, I don't want to call it provincial, but being culturally and ethnically not diverse, right? I mean, it's it's very easy to kind of turn in on yourself when you're surrounded by by people like you, because people who are unlike you, as we experience in the United States, are constantly challenge you to be different, to think differently, to question yourself, to doubt, you know, whether your long, you know, straight hair should be the standard of beauty or whether, you know, the the kinky, you know, dark hair of someone else should be the standard of beauty. You just, I remember I had never met a black person in my life. Can you imagine that? Until... My one of my distant cousins who worked at the embassy of Kenya in Iran invited us to um, to an event at the embassy, and I walked in, and and I saw people I had never even imagined. Wow! Um, you know, so this is all to say that when you are in a you're culturally ethnically uh, secluded then you kind of turn in on yourself and you begin to question things because there is nothing else to challenge you. And I think part of um, what makes us the way we are is because we are not diverse in in Iran. I mean, we're, you know, yes, we have uh, Kurdish people and we have Turks and we have Azeris and we have all sorts of people in, in that way. But we are all part of this common culture that has been around and we have belonged to. We don't have people from other countries coming to us and challenging us and uh, making us, forcing us to see ourselves and the world around us in a different way. And I think that probably accounts for some of it. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to author Roya Hakakian. The book is A Beginner's Guide to America for the Immigrant and the Curious. I want to quote from the section on public transportation getting lost. 
Assimilation, you write, is not a destination. It may be best likened to a marriage. You do not have to assume all the colors of America only to know her deeply, love her despite her flaws, and live alongside her harmoniously. And in that section, you write about being able to breezily answer when asked, where are you from? You know, this was a very uh, fraught question for Iranian immigrants in the 1980s because mm-hmm. Iran was first and foremost associated with the hostage crisis mm-hmm. and a, a dreary time. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the worst case in elementary school, I'd be told, go back to your country or terrorist or go take somebody hostage. But the microaggressive way in the present tense is to ask somebody, no, where are you really from? Where's your accent? Mm-hmm. If you tell someone you're from mm-hmm. Miami, well, it's not sufficient. Mm-hmm. No, where are you really from? Uh, mm-hmm. Tell me about that and it being loaded and something you were were scared of. I mean, there was all sorts of ways that immigrants, you know, if people were open-minded enough, you could say, I'm Persian, like Mazdrabani says, like the cat, meow, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But others would say, oh, you know, my I'm from the, the, the Middle East, the former Ottoman Empire or something, anything but telling mm-hmm. someone you're from Iran. Right, right. And it's interesting because, as you know, and you just mentioned, a lot of Iranians in the United States introduce themselves as Persian Americans. And I've had this conversation with nieces and nephews who say, I'm Persian American, why don't you you know, why do you introduce yourself as Iranian-American? And I always say because <laughs> I have to face the responsibility of, you know, the current political situation and be able to, you know, speak up on behalf of both parties, you know, both Iranians and Americans and try to bring some insight into what drives our tensions. So, yes, you're correct. And and I that that we are reluctant to say we are Iranian Americans and I assume this is probably the experience for so many other immigrants from countries that are at crosshairs with the United States coming into this country. But you know, there's something I learned uh, which I wasn't as fully aware of that in some ways, you know, I used to I used to be afraid of where are you from? Because I always thought I had given myself away, that something about me uh, didn't fit in. Something about me didn't allow me to pass, right, as a fellow ordinary American. I just wanted to pass, like every new immigrant wants, until we pass so much that then we want to go back to who we were and kind of rekindle that life. But then... um, I think one of the really important discoveries I made later on, long after I had already passed and was no longer uh, really interested in passing because I'd done it enough, it was to recognize that we ask each other, where are you from, as a way of uh, making each other's acquaintance, that this is how conversations began. And it wasn't as harmful or dangerous a question as I used to think of it. And of course, later I realized that, you know, Americans who are clearly born and raised in this country ask themselves the same questions, ask each other the same question. You know, I'm from Utah. Where are you from? New Hampshire, you know, and and it's a way of getting acquainted. So I think that's another thing we immigrants can bring into the conversation with each other and with others, which is that you know, certain questions may jar us or alarm us, but perhaps there's room to think that we're just trying to 
uh, get to know each other just as we ask, you know, are you married or, you know, do you have children? Reminds me of my time in Manhattan. I was there the first mm-hmm. decade of this century. I can't believe we're looking back at it that retrospectively. And mm-hmm. uh, I was a magazine writer. And uh, outside our newsroom at Smart Money was uh, the soup guy from Seinfeld, his <laughs> hole in the wall. His name is Al Yeganet. And I heard right. through the grapevine that he was an Iranian Jew. And right. so I dutifully waited in line with my brother. I held my twenty dollar mm. bill for the yeah. chowder and everything. Don't ask any questions because he's gonna yeah. bark and kick you out of the line. It's freezing yeah. outside and some winter, you know, I think it was two thousand two, it was clearly after nine mm-hmm. eleven. And when we finally got up there and he's ladling the soup from us, I was like, Aga Chitori, how are you? Are you is it true you're Iranian? And then he gave me this look of death, not in public. Come back later. <laughs> and uh, I did come back right as he was closing, and he graciously took me in. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you And he explained to me he resented being called the soup Nazi in Seinfeld, yes. even though it was great for business. You compare yeah. me to some Nazi terrorist, and then he's saying, look, we are living in a period after September 11th in Manhattan where every Afghani restaurant is running an American flag. It's a fraught period. And here you are, you're a cultural icon, but you have to be on the down low about being Iranian. In fact, there was some Greek imposter across town who claimed that he was the soup guy's long lost brother, you know? Yeah, and it, 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 it so broke my heart that, you know, he wasn't mm-hmm. an overtly religious guy. He was not a zealot in any sense. He was a right. pop culture fixture, but he was in some ways ashamed of the word Iran. Right, right, right. And, um, you know, this is, uh, but look at what I see. I, you know, I grew up, as you said, in post-revolutionary Iran. I grew up in a school where, or I, I went to school where we made up, you know, morning lineups in the schoolyard and right. chanted death to America before I went to class. So I think it's really remarkable that with everything that has gone on between the two countries and with the greatest, most egregious diplomatic violation in the history of diplomacy, which was the takeover of the American embassy and the keeping of 52 Americans hostage for 444 days, the worst we have done in the United States, you know, we have been afraid, uh, we as Iranians have been afraid of sometimes saying that we are from Iran. But, you know, that's been the extent of it. I mean, we could have been rounded up. We could have been, we could have suffered uh, far more. And I think, you know, especially when you look at sort of the history of other immigrant communities in America, right? You know, the Chinese Americans were under the Exclusion Act. You know, the uh, Japanese were rounded up and put in detention camps, right? But I want to say that this civilization, this civilization, the world civilization, and then the American civilization has, can be credited for having made a leap forward because the worst that we have experienced in retrospect and in comparison to what other immigrant minorities, immigrant communities in the United Mm. States had experienced is is far less worse than, than those. Wouldn't you agree? 
Well, in fairness, you were a persecuted minority in Iran, less so before the revolution. I mean, very few people realize that Iran has the largest Jewish population in the Middle East outside of Israel. I think it was as high as 30,000 before the revolution, and now it's about 10,000. Uh, but mm -hmm. my father tells me about stories of getting beaten up. He and his friends and uh, the headmaster spreading gossip about them when they were little kids. Having said that, uh, mm -hmm. That kind of prepared you and braced you for this kind of uh, skeptical, thick skin that you had to build coming here as a as a minority in a much much bigger country. For sure, and not only I, I and I would dare say, so many other immigrants from non democratic societies who move here come with not just thicker skins, but perhaps richer perspectives too. So while we recognize, and that's in some ways really the ultimate purpose of my book, that while we recognize that there are a lot of things in America that can work better, that can be amended, that ought to be, you know, improve uh, to make us a more just society. But at the same time, we have achieved a great deal that deserves to be celebrated and embraced as not just our accomplishment as Americans, but also you know, just just the conquest of the human spirit that we were able to get to the places where we had not gotten to 200 years ago. It is striking how many Iranian immigrants from the post-revolutionary period you see scaling the charts up in Silicon Valley. I mean, the CEO uh, of Uber, I believe, Dara Khosrowshahi, you see various executives at YouTube, film executives, venture capitalists, comedians, uh, Hollywood types, authors. Uh, it's it's mm -hmm. uh it's it's just a great immigrant success story and what's interesting to me is going to the big epicenters like Los Angeles which is nicknamed Irangelis or Long Island kind of great neck New York or northern Virginia that have spawned off mm -hmm. kind of subcultures of of their own i mean you saw the shahs of sunset on yeah. cable right it's kind of characterizing mm -hmm. it's a character <laughs> of kind of the the socal mm -hmm. Irangelino excesses. You've kind of arrived when you can satire upon satire. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And by the way, you know, while we have, um, Iranian Americans have um, suffered discrimination, you know, you had been told when you were a kid in elementary school to go home. We have, despite all that, been able to accomplish the very things you just mentioned. So the fact that both of these forces exist, that we have been able to make those leaps, despite all those pressures and, you know, stereotypes and all that, is pretty miraculous and worth being understood. And again, going back to what I said earlier, celebrated. The Wall Street Journal writes about your book, A Beginner's Guide to America. Roya Hakakian's observation takes the seemingly banal into the realm of the profound and is characteristic of her honest and beautiful book. Hers is a guide, yes, but of an amicable kind. She offers counsel to readers, not commandments, and although her book could be seen as a love letter to America, it is one that's been written by an exacting lover who isn't blind to this country's flaws. <laughs> We're talking to Roya Hakakian. The book is A Beginner's Guide to America. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. You can catch us on WERA 
Arlington and in Washington, D.C. Of course, we are on Virginia Public Radio across the great Commonwealth. We are on WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina. Holler if you, too, would like us on your air. If you're just joining us, we're talking to author Roya Hakakian. The book is A Beginner's Guide to America, her latest book. Uh, Lyrical and perceptive is what the Boston Globe called it. Uh, You know, this, this section, Roya, John, the lovable, the inexplicable, you have a subsection called A Strange Brand of Generous. And I'd like Mm -hmm. to quote from it to take you into our inevitable next section. Some American behaviors shock you. For instance, the practice of going Dutch in restaurants. You can't help Mm -hmm. but think back of all the times your former compatriots fought over the bill at the end of a meal and insisted on treating everyone. And here, they warmly share a meal for an hour or two, but end it with an anticlimactic examination of the charges and deliberation about everyone's dues. (laughs) Americans go Dutch, and yet they give in ways that you might never have seen anyone give. This will puzzle you at first. All you see is an absence of generosity because you will be looking for it in the places you used to know. Later, you will find something new, something unfamiliar yet dazzling. You might be walking into the post office absentmindedly one day when someone will hold the door and stand aside to let you pass through. The gesture will stun you. And I'm inevitably thinking about Tarof. How can we, you know, be a stranger in a strange land from Iran Coming after the time of, as you said, this this violation of diplomacy, the hostage crisis, I've always was shocked at the dichotomy of the hostage mm-hmm. crisis was also a violation of the hospitality that yes. Iranians were known for. I don't want to sound flip when I say that, you know, if you had to take them hostage, why didn't you just feed them lots of great Persian food, tell them <laughs> great things, teach them about history of wine, of agriculture, of music, of the poets of Shiraz? Instead, there were mock executions and a a state of perpetual horror in the United States for 444 days. And I'm always trying to, as a proud Iranian now, you Mm -hmm. know, 40 years later, I'm trying to underscore the fact that we are a hospitable and giving and hospitable to the point of self-flagellation. And I I love how Mm -hmm. these recollections of your first days here kind of underscored that. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Um, it's really interesting you should mention that about the hostage crisis and how it went against, you know, the culture of hospitality in Iran, because um, I was recently revisiting uh, this entire, you know, story and realized that, learned that, I should say, that one of the former hostages uh, who later became, you know, returned to the United States and was ambassador to several different countries, John Limbert, had this conversation with the hostages at the embassy, you know, in Persian. So because he's a fluent Persian speaker. So he told them, you know, what you're doing to us isn't just bad for us, but it's bad for you because the entire world believes that Iran is a very hospitable nation. And what you're doing to us goes against your own culture. And and so it's really funny because I'm watching this footage and, you know, the hostage takers have their, you know, are kind of looking down on on their shoes, at their shoes because they're, you know, they, they know he's telling the truth and they feel mm-hmm. awkward hearing it. So, yes, it's, it's, um, it's true. And I think part of what makes the encounter between an immigrant like you, like me, and this culture really interesting is that uh, we recognize our own generosity and our own hospitality, but then, and then, you know, recognize that the way we are generous and hospitable is in some ways 
absent in this culture, but then are forced to recognize that they are Americans, generous and hospitable in ways that we didn't know, in ways that we could learn to be. And I just really found that incredibly mind-blowing because I was looking for it in all the wrong places, right? You know, we go to restaurants and we go Dutch. And, you know, I thought, who does that? You know, but then on the other hand, they have these programs where, you know, they make sure that their kids go to soup kitchens and serve food. um, Or even the shock you face that churches uh, actually tried to, you know, feather your cushion effectively when you first got here. There were charities that, for no other reason than charity and hospitality, reached out to a young Iranian immigrant to help her, and and anonymously, just out of the spirit of service and doing the right thing in 1985. Exactly. And not just me. I mean, look at the boundless number of community groups, uh, religious groups throughout this country that take it upon themselves to say, collect furniture for incoming refugees into their communities. You know, we had a program here in Connecticut where, you know, there were a number of immigrant children in schools who didn't have sports equipment. So, you know, this immigrant organization in Connecticut spent a great deal of energy and time to raise sports equipment, you know, secondhand from families where You know, their own kids had outgrown the stuff or weren't using them. And we did that. And it was incredible. And all those kids got exactly what they wanted. So, and this isn't the sort of generosity that I used to know, you know. So what I think is really remarkable is both what we bring, which is our own brand of generosity, and also what we get exposed to in our encounter with this culture, which enriches us and enriches them in return. Roya Hakakian, in the five minutes or so I have left with you, one thing that I think almost kind of is a coda or a postscript on this book, I find in Miami where I grew up, certain many Mariel refugees who came here in 1980 and were dismissed by older money Cubans as literally they were called scum. They were called mm-hmm. they were called the the sewage that was flushed from uh, Fidel Castro's harbors. Uh, many mm-hmm. of them, 40 years later, have uh, espoused the GOP's anti-immigration stance under Trump. Yeah. And many mm-hmm. Iranians I know in Los Angeles, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's this there's this idea of kind of um, it's true a simulation when you can become callous to the plight of brand new immigrants. There seems to be a time honored tradition of that going back to the Irish, to the German immigrants, even among Jewish immigrants within Jewish immigrants, those that originally came from Germany and then those subsequently came from Poland and Russia. Exactly. I mean, if there's one secret that I was not able to get at writing this book, it's it's this very point that what is it about one immigrant group that does its best, tries hard, makes all sorts of appeals in order to be accepted into the United States and then later by Americans What is it about them that then turns them, as you aptly say, callous to want to shut the door on on people who are trying to do the very same thing that they have done? I don't know the answer to that, except that I think there's something about us as human beings that drives us to the point of wishing to always be the only members of, of a club, 
We want to feel that we have uh, exclusivity, that we are the only ones, that we have, we are the ones to have access. So that's the only way I can explain this. And there is no other explanation. And I suppose the only reassuring thing about it is that almost every immigrant group has done this practice. And so there's something about the universality of this heinous exercise that makes me feel like, you know, if if they got over it, then the rest of us will get over it too. And then, you know, everyone will hopefully get in and uh, come together as one nation in the way that we have always done. And yet when I'm invited to help Afghani families that are coming in in this brand new PTSD with the collapse of the country, mm-hmm. when my synagogue is the torchbearer mm-hmm. for doing this for a Muslim family or the way it did it with mm-hmm. an Iraqi Kurdish family, where it's pulling at my heartstrings, I think the universality of, of empathy, of the, the mm-hmm. tears in my own three-year-old mm-hmm. eyes and the mm-hmm. constant memory of where my mother was. I mean, that's my mm-hmm. inception. That's my starting point. I can't be honest. I can't be true without being in constant daily contact with that. And that's something that I think is so beautifully, you know, the smells, the aromas, the blushing, all the all the memories that you kind of recapture in that area. Everybody has his own immigrant story, but this is a beautiful book. I highly recommend it. A Beginner's Guide to America for the Immigrant and the Curious, the author Roya Hakakian, also author of Journey from the Land of No. Please give us your social media particulars and, and your plans where you're going to be the next few months. Um, I am at Roya the Writer on Twitter, and uh, I am giving a bunch of talks. Uh, the listing will be is already available both via uh, my social media and my website. I will be in San Diego, California. I am coming to Washington. And a, and a bunch of other places. So I hope this and gets I hope some to sort catch of, you. Yeah, I hope this gets some sort of screen adaptation from my cheap seats. Not that anyone in Hollywood <laughs> listens to me, but I highly recommend it. Again, A Beginner's Guide <laughs> to America. Roya Hakakian, please, please come back on. I will. It's been such a delight, Ruben. My pleasure. Full disclosure, stay with us. If you are just joining us, we were talking to Roya Hakakian. She's author of the book, A Beginner's Guide to America for the Immigrant and the Curious. I figured it was an opportune time to flash back to our episode a few years ago with George Valdez, uh, the peculiar case study of the Cuban immigrant who grew up in Miami, became a an honor student at the University of Miami in math, uh, got a coveted internship at the Federal Reserve Bank of Miami, and after a few um, misadventures later, became one of the Medellin cocaine cartel's top men in America. When I started in 76, I was a founding member of the group that eventually became known as the Medellin Drug Cartel. But like I talked later on in life, there was really no Medellin Drug Cartel. That's just a name sure. that the Americans gave us, the government, so they could unite a, a, you know, a whole bunch of group of guys together under one name. That way they have one common enemy. And it was very, very uh, functional for them. But in reality, it wasn't like the cartels we see today, the Sinaloa, you know, uh, all of those different cartels that are unique in themselves. We were all five different groups. I mean, we were one group originally that controlled 95% of all the cocaine that came into America. And that's not me saying it. That's what the government accused me of because you know, I never... I never. Uh, well, it's amazing. You know, you and I crossed paths for my book, Hotel Scarface, where cocaine cowboys partied and plotted to control Miami. And I thought... It was so irresistible because one, you think about the Medellin cartel and Pablo Escobar and uh, Rodrigo Gacha and everybody, 
it's decidedly Colombian, but they did need Cubans. They needed Cubans in South Florida who knew the coastline, the entire experience with the Bay of Pigs and um, uh, the, the CIA training kind of gone awry. The fascinating thing to me, and this is where you and I had a lot in common, is we're both immigrants who brought a, a tremendous amount of childhood trauma to Miami. And in your case, if you could walk me back to you and your family fleeing Fidel Castro's Cuba and when you came to the United States. Yeah, you know, and uh, and I really did. And I identify a lot with your talk that you gave for the TED Talk because, you know, I was an immigrant child. My family were very well off in Cuba. And of course, at the age of 10, I mean, I had no idea we were coming to America. I just remember my mother saying, wake up, we're leaving. And uh, so I was in a daze, didn't understand why I was leaving all my friends, all my toys, everything. And her whole thing is, we're going to go to America where you're going to be able to worship God freely and we're going to start a new life. Well, I didn't see the need for a new life, but, you know, I came at the age of 10, but it was a very traumatic experience for me because my mother got left behind at the airport. And, uh, you know, I say that in my life, there was like three different pivotal points. And that was one of them because what ended up happening at that moment when I see my father didn't want to leave, mm. I was 10, my brother was nine, my sister was five. And all of a sudden I see my mother crying saying, we're not, you know, I have to stay behind. Well, to me, you know, the world ended because, you know, typical Hispanic family. The mother is the one that's always around, is the center of the home. So we come to Miami sure. and we go, you know, you know how it was, uh, how we were discriminated at the beginning. Also, we were, you know, confused. We're 10 years old. I was very poor. I was, you know, very wealthy in Cuba. Suddenly I'm poor. 11 of us are sleeping in a one-bedroom apartment, one bathroom, writing down what time we're going to go to the bathroom because there's only one. And everyone had to go to school or work. And I was very, very confused. So my, my mindset at that time was that there's no God. I mean, my mother was crazy. But, you know, we, as the same as your family, we come from a similar background where we have parents that were very strong into education and uh, strong philosophy, strong morals, very strong work ethics. Uh, see my father, like you saw your father, sacrifice so much without ever complaining, which was really what was amazing. Because as a 10-year-old, I was complaining. And here was this 40-year-old man who had been a millionaire since he was 20. Not saying a word, not complaining, cleaning toilets at uh, Jay Byron's. So your dad, your dad worked as a janitor in Jay Byron's. You were a young kid. You still went to school. You guys went to church. You tried to keep the semblance of everything together. But you remember being hungry as a child yeah. in Miami. But we, when my mother got left behind, my dad was making 85 cents an hour. The rent was $80. So basically all we had, Robin, was just a glass of this milk that they give powder milk from Vietnam that would not mix. And then all of a sudden, uh, with two raw eggs. And that was all that we would get till later on in the evening when we would order a cantina. Remember, in Miami, they, they would uh, cater food to your house. And we would order uh, enough rice, beans, and uh, meat for two people. And four of us would eat out of that. And, uh, and I was hungry, and I could not understand what it was. I remember finding out a friend of mine was getting food stamps and my, going to my dad and saying, Hey, Dad, my friend gets food stamps, and he takes lunch to school. Do you know about that? He said, yeah. And I'm like, well, why don't we get it? He said, because that's for poor people. He pointed a finger at my chest. Son, you get up early and you figure out how to help feed your family. I was 10 years old, weighing 70 pounds, but we did. And we survived. And we went on. You know, I still studied uh, hard. I went to, when I went to University of Miami, I worked for the Federal Reserve Bank. I was the youngest employee. Well, hold on. I mean, the interesting thing in this is it was so, it was so kind of hand-to-mouth that the Magluta family bakery would, just as a poignant thing in your book, Coming Clean, they would bring you cake scraps, cake carvings and the like. And that was something that you and your brother fondly remember, that kind of sugar rush of, of a, a family's charitable 
activity. No, and, and they became, uh, you know, Gloria, Sal's mom became like my mother because my mother was in Cuba. Uh, when, my, when Sal's dad, he had business with my father. He owed my father money. My father had to sign to let him be able to leave the country. But when we came to the United States, they were doing really well. It was two brothers who married two sisters. They had a, a three little bakers. And it was fantastic. They would bring us, you know, those cake trimmings. And that was like to us like a filet mignon. I mean, and I remember Gloria paid for us to go to the Boy Scouts, which actually saved my brother and I. So, yeah, they were our second family. And many years going back, looking, it was probably some of the greatest moments in my life. You know, we were together. We, we struggled together. We worked hard together. We survived. We have very, very little. But, you know, we had the presence of our father. And then our mother came in December. And then our family was complete. And, yeah, we were poor financially. But I look back, man, we were extremely wealthy as far as values and as far as, you know, uh, that unity of the home. My, to my parents, the most important thing in life was education. You know, we were in Miami for three years, very difficult to survive at that time. And the refugee department was settling people in different parts of the country. So we had an aunt in New Jersey, and we moved down there. And I remember my mother, I mean, we're dirt poor, going up to the school and said, I'm here to put the Catholic school because to her that was the most important thing. And it's like, I'm here to enroll my kids. And this was December. And they're like, ma'am, school has already started, you know, back in September. And second of all, can you afford the tuition? And she's like, well, you know what? The church belongs to the people. And uh, no, I cannot afford, but you need to put my children in. I remember my mother sitting outside the archdiocese. And uh, until they let us in school, she would not leave. And eventually she got us into school because that was the most important thing for her is that we get an education because that's how we were going to become successful. Tell me about how you became the star student at the University of Miami. I mean, this was in accounting? Yeah, it was in accounting. What happened, uh, Robin, is to me, when, when, you know, I talk about it now as meeting the pseudo-American dream. You know, when I came to Miami here, the second day my cousin comes in this beautiful candy apple red GTO, and I'm like, oh, my God, he's only been here three years before us, and look at him, he's already made it. If I work hard, if I sacrifice uh, and do whatever it takes, I have to be the best at whatever I do. So that that way I will, you know, find this American dream where I can have a gorgeous car and a beautiful mansion. Well, you know, I had to be first. I mean, I, I don't know if it's something that's innate in me or, but for my parents is uh, a B, which is not acceptable. You know, it's like, even you get an A minus, my mom would say, well, where you left the rest of the A? So we, we had that. Work ethics, that's all that mattered to them, that we go to school and that we be the best that we could be because that will lead, education will lead us to success. You got a full scholarship to the University of Miami? I got a full scholarship to the University of Miami, and at the same time, the Federal Reserve Bank was paying for my tuition. I was the only employee at the bank that they paid to go to the University of Miami. You know, they had tuition. I have to understand this. How did you get on the radar of the Federal Reserve? I want people to understand. So we're talking the mid-1970s in Miami. By 1980... The narcotics-driven economy of Miami was so flush that the Federal Reserve Bank had a $5 billion cash surplus, which I point out in the book is more than all of the other Federal Reserve Banks in the United States combined. So you were there as a, as a kind of an innocent student and everything, but at a time that, that that one bank was arguably the most prosperous and flush bank in America. No, and, and what happened, uh, my dad had a friend uh, from, that, from New Jersey that moved to Miami. He became... Uh, one of the head of security for the bank. And he recommended, I was just 17 years old. They didn't, didn't have no one that young working for the bank. But he told him, listen, interview him. This kid is brilliant. Uh, he's at the University of Miami. He would do great. And they hired me. And they, I started part-time for a few months. And then I ended up 
getting a full-time job to the accounting department. And I was 17 years old at that time. But I was like a nerd. To me, it was like, Robin, I'd never seen drugs in my life. I never drank alcohol. I never went to a party where there was, you know, anything going on. All I ever did was I worked at the bank from 8 o'clock in the morning. I used to get there at 7.30. I leave at 5. And I had my first class at University of Miami at 5.45, you know, till 10 o'clock. Come home and study till 3 o'clock in the morning. I do that same routine day in and day out. So when they hired me, and the reason they get, I, I remember when I wanted to go to University of Miami, of course, I couldn't afford to pay it back then. Thank God back then there was no student loans. I remember going to the vice president of the bank, uh, Jesse Watson, great man. And, you know, I kept showing him my grades and kept showing him how I was doing in school. And he just couldn't believe that. Here I was going full time and holding a full time job. And he's like, you want to go to, because my first semester, I went to Miami Day. He says, you want to go, we'll pay for your tuition. And they were paying, the bank had tuition reimbursement, but you had to go to the state of the community college. I was going to the most expensive school in Florida at that time. So they would pay for it. I was on full scholarship. And actually, that was the money, the extra money that I had to be able to, you know, buy gas, insurance, because I had to give one check to my parents. And with the other check, I had to pay for my lunch. I had to pay for my books. So actually, because I was on full scholarship and the bank was paying for me to go uh, to the university, I was making, you know, whatever the tuition at that time was every semester. Even so, there was a side gig opportunity that surfaced at a time that Miami is quickly becoming the financial hub of, of Pan America. You get a side gig. Do I, do I understand this right? Setting up uh, shell companies or setting up offshore paperwork? What happened with that was when I graduated from Miami and I remember one of my uh, professors coming to me and say, hey, do you want to come work for me? He had been a partner at Price and Waterhouse in Michigan, came to Miami at this time, you know, now we're talking about 1976. If you didn't speak Spanish, you were in trouble in Miami. So he's like, look, if you do my Spanish clients, I'll give you an office, I'll give you a secretary. Well, at the bank, because I worked in the accounting department and part of the auditing department, I knew how shell corporations were started, where they were opened, and you know, roughly what they cost. So when I went to work for this group of people that was La Puerta del Sol, the first thing that they asked me was, listen, do you know how to open foreign bank accounts? And then I'm like, yeah, of course I knew how to open a foreign bank account. And I never opened one, but I figured that if I go where I heard, heard that they were there and find the, uh, you know, the attorney's offices that handle it, I could do it. So, but that came after I found out these people were drug dealers. Because when I first went to do this account, it was a little grocery store. And I'm, I mean, I'm as innocent as you can ever imagine. But I'm going in there, the, I never forget the first Monday. I go in there and I see $100,000 and I'm like, holy cow. Now think about that. Remember, in Miami, you could buy a great middle-class home for what, $20,000 during this time, 30? Sure. So I see this 100,000, Robin, and I'm like, my God, where's this money coming from? This is just a little strip joint, 47th and Northwest 7th. And uh, so, but I never crossed my mind anything illegal. Ne you know, next week I go there, 75,000. I'm like, man, something's definitely wrong because I know how much they're buying. They're not even buying $1,000 a month. How are they turning all this profit? So finally, when the third week I went and I saw another hundred, hundred and a quarter, I called the owner over and I'm like, listen, ah, bro, you gotta, we gotta talk about this. And I'm like, you know, the guy couldn't even hardly read or write. I'm like, look, in accounting, it's a basic formula. If you buy something for a dollar and you're lucky enough to sell it for $2, that's your profit. The problem here is you're showing $100,000 in revenue and you're buying $1,000. <laughs> you know, I tell people like, I didn't know nothing about Jesus multiplying two fish and three bread because man, I would have said, dude, you have nothing on this Colombian. They're multiplying a thousand, a hundredfold. He's like, hey, listen, 
We're not grocery store. We, we're drug dealers. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to George Valdez. He's author of the book, Coming Clean. Uh, I love this book. He was U.S. head of the Medellin drug cartel, uh, Cuban-born, uh, and his life took several turns. He started at the Federal Reserve Bank in Miami, almost accidentally became uh, a drug kingpin, helped launch two of the biggest cocaine dealers in U.S. history, and went on after your time in prison and got a Ph.D. You found Jesus, and today you you lecture and help people in jail and, and young at-risk um, youth. I do want to get to your encounter with one Manuel Garces, uh, became a mentor of yours. This Colombian gentleman from Medellin was a was religious. His sister, I believe, was a was a nun who helped uh, tribes in the Amazon and whatnot. And you thought that engaging with him in this side gig you had, this side hustle, you were heading helping him set up uh, financing to buy banana boats. Is that right? Yeah. So. Through the Puerto del Sol, uh, one of the guys who used to come there all the time, Jaime, we became friends. And uh, he says to me, listen, there's a group of people that would like to talk to you. They're thinking about opening a brand new business here. And I'm like, sure. So he took me to this gentleman's house, Manuel Garces, and I met him for the first time. And there was three other guys. And this group was what originally became. I mean, this was the founding group of the Medellin Cartel. This is what Pablo Escobar didn't even exist. Any of these people didn't even okay, exist. Okay, so it's, at this point, you still think you're dealing with produce people. Oh, is yeah. That what well, you they're saying, allege? listen, we want to open, we want to buy a, a, yacht, a boat. We want to open a brand new banana business. We have our banana plantations in Colombia, and I think it's a great business. Do a, I mean, they handle it with me, Robin, like just so professional because Manuel was very educated. He's like, do, do me a feasibility study. Well, I did. And of course, it would have been very profitable. Little did I know they were really what they wanted to import was cocaine, but I had no clue. So we opened, you know, did the entire infrastructure, uh, Kiss Bananas, uh, bought the label, the boxes. Uh, we went out and bought a boat, uh, a big ship that we converted to uh, refrigeration. And I mean, we were set to go. Uh, this was going to, and actually, it was going to be a very, very profitable business. But in that process of that setting up the boat, and they're seeing how I'm moving, how I'm operating. Well, first of all, I said to them, if you want me to handle all this for you, I got to be equal partners and you got to put out my money because I don't have any, any capital to contribute. If I'm going to abandon my, because my plan was really just to make enough money to go to law school, University of Miami. If I'm going to abandon sure. that for now, I got to be equal partners and make it worthwhile for me. So they like done. In this banana boat business. In the banana boat business. But I go out to California to refurbish this boat and the guy that's doing my refrigeration, uh, he had a softball team, and I used to play, used to be a great baseball player. And he went ahead and he's like, we became real close friends, and I would go to his house on the weekend. He started telling me, listen, I know that boat is just to import cocaine. Now, think about this. This is 97, beginning of 97, uh, probably the end of 76, beginning of 77. I'm like, dude, no, it's not. This is a banana business. You think that I'd be involved in drugs and put my name as the president? And he kept kidding me about it. Well, when I would go to Colombia to tell Manny the progress of the boat, they started telling me, listen, we want you to handle all operations for us in the U.S. And I'm like, I mean, what are you talking about? i never seen cocaine in my life. I mean, what? <laughs> handle what? He said, look, we, imp we import a lot of uh, coke into, we just need to start export. I mean, we need to start distributing. And we need someone like you that is educated, clean record, does not drink, does not do drugs. And I'm like, I want nothing to do with it. I was making a lot of money opening this foreign bank accounts. But he's like, I kept insisting, and then I came up with my brilliant plan. Full disclosure, special thanks to producer Claire Morgan at Notterly. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. 
please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn at handle Full D Radio. And again, a warm hello to our broadcast partners, WVTF, Virginia Public Radio, WERA in Northern Virginia and much of D.C., WPVM in the mountains of North Carolina, and KPPQ out in Ventura, California. Please contact me to run full disclosure on your air. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you, as always, for listening and back with you next week. Thank you.